0: Resolute Square. There was also maintained
1: what was called an enemy's list, which is rather extensive and continually being updated.
0: Democrats want Republicans dead. Where I could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody, and I wouldn't lose any voters, okay? The women with the least likelihood of getting pregnant are the ones most worried about having a abortion.
1: On January sixth of twenty twenty one, you had tens of thousands of people peacefully protesting. No, it's not a right wing conspiracy. It's not QAnon. It's real.
0: <laughs> I'm Rick Wilson, and this is the Enemies List. Hi, folks. I'm Rick Wilson, and welcome to The Enemies List. My guest today is Jonathan Shapiro. Jonathan is an attorney, a former prosecutor, a gifted writer, everything from novels to nonfiction to more television than you can shake a stick at. He has also now written an incredibly insightful book called How to Be Abe Lincoln, Seven Steps to Leading a Legendary Life. And as you know, we're some Abe Lincoln fans here on the show, and I read this with extraordinarily uh, high enthusiasm because, Jonathan, you drew some fascinating lessons for how Lincoln worked and lived and grew and governed and related to people that you are correct in saying would be valuable for the lives of everyday folks. Tell us about how the book came to be. Um, What inspired you to jump in to write this book at this moment? First of all, thank you for having me.
1: I'm, I'm, I'm a huge fan of, of your work. Though we would have been on the other side of things when I was uh, working in politics, but we've reached that point where all the sinners are on one side and one, all the saints are on the other. So it's it's a pleasure to be on your side. I guess I got tired of having people I love, friends and family, throw up their hands and say they were done with politics, they were done with the public space, they were. Sick of the divisions, and they they were ready to quit. Some of them have, and so I wanted to write a book that gives us some hope. You know, not just curses the darkness, but but lights a candle. And it occurs to me, as someone who's loved Abe Lincoln my whole life, my oldest son is named Abraham after all, for him. That uh, Abe Lincoln is the man of the moment. He's the one who who gave us the template to get through these periods of division. And what I talk about in the book, how to be Abe Lincoln, the seven steps to a legendary life. Abe Lincoln was Abe Lincoln because he did seven things and he did them throughout his life with sincerity and conviction. And if we just do those seven things, if we follow his his map, we're gonna be better people and we're gonna be a better country. So talk to us about some of those seven things. Okay, if, if you get upset, Stop reading toward the end. The idea here is that each step starts with uh, a word, the first letter of which spells out Lincoln. And if you think that's silly, uh, you're, you're right. And you've grasped something important about Lincoln, which is Lincoln had a great sense of humor and he was our country's first great branding expert. He was a tremendous deliverer of messages about himself. And so the seven steps are the things that he did. And, and the first step is laugh. You can't be a Lincoln without laughing. You can't be a smart and empathetic person without a sense of humor. One of the things that I dislike most about our current politics, but also our culture, is the meanness of our humor. The idea that it's only funny if it comes at someone else's expense. I love Mel Brooks, but Mel Brooks said something I disagree with. Mel Brooks said, if I fall down, it's a tragedy. If you fall down, it's funny. And the truth is, I never thought any of that was funny. My father always said, people will forget what you say to them, but they'll always remember how you made them feel. And what I love about Abe Lincoln's humor and his ability to laugh primarily at himself is that he always used humor in a way to bring people together. He never, past the age of 32, used humor to drive people apart. He never made fun of people except himself. And he used humor the way, and I talk about President Zelensky in the Ukraine. He Lincoln used humor the way Zelensky hu- used humor to build a nation, mm-hmm. to create a bond with one another. Because you can't laugh with someone without bonding with them in some ways. And and the reason I I start with laughter is because everybody who knew Lincoln and wrote about Lincoln, the one thing they were all absolutely on board with was. He was funny, and not only was he funny, laughter was his coping mechanism not only for succeeding in politics and bridging the divide between people, but Lincoln, who suffered from depression, said, if I didn't laugh, I would
0: cry, and elsewhere, he said, if I didn't laugh, I would kill myself. I was reading another bio of him. He made the first presidential known presidential fart joke. <laughs> Well,
1: you, you know what? You've taught me something. And so that's great. In the book, I talk about the fact that some people say they don't have a sense of humor. And I make the argument that everybody has a sense of humor. We're born with it. It's innate. It's in our system. We've evolved to have one. In the same way, we have a sense of vision and a sense of smell, a sense of sight. And you can sharpen all your senses. Lincoln was obsessed with sharpening his comic side. As a kid, he would go hear preachers so that he could mimic them better to his friends. He was a guy who mm-hmm. read humor books, never failed to go see a comedy, unfortunately, uh, and w- was a sadly was a man who understood the he understood what Jesus understood and what all the great religious leaders understood, which is if you can if you can break down serious moral issues into a story. And if that story can have a shade of humor in it, it will never be forgotten. But I mean, you you mentioned the presidential uh, scatological humor. How could you not love a man who, when told that his secretary of war told uh, told the the New York Herald that Abe Lincoln was a baboon, Lincoln said, I'm not insulted. I'm worried because usually my secretary of war is correct.
0: (laughs) I don't see the last few presidents having that, that magnanimity you know, and I think one thing that you catch here is his wit and his sort of sly humor was interpersonally effective, but it was also kind of politically effective. I mean, there's a famous line when they're in the Lincoln-Douglas debates, and he says, you know, you have the luxury of being on all sides of every issue. I have to speak the truth. He certainly, you know, you could have delivered that line in a nasty, edgy way, but he delivered it in a way that the audience laughed and bonded with him in a way, and and it sort of, became a a through line in a lot of his conversations with people.
1: Yes. People used to go to the White House not to meet the president, but to hear the jokes. Uh, He was criticized Mm -hmm. by his own cabinet for telling too many jokes, for telling too many stories. I've read uh, some scholarship that suggests he may have suffered from a sort of a low-grade Tourette syndrome. I mean, he was literally incapable of stopping himself. And one of the things I talk about in the book is, we have to learn to laugh. And one way we can learn to laugh uh, is by understanding where Lincoln went wrong with his humor. You know, Lincoln, Lincoln did not hit a thousand. There were times when Lincoln's humor could be too cutting, could be too mean. He'd be canceled now for the racist dialect jokes he used to tell. But if you just focus on that, you miss 99% of the story. Which that which is that that laughter is is to my mind the gateway to empathy and the gateway to understanding other people and, and it's not a mystery to me that Zelensky uh, became such a beloved leader because his entry into the public space
0: was through laughter. This is something that I find a lot of of folks are and it's strange to say this in in America in the early part of this century to say that there are people who say all the time, you know, we are in a cold civil war. We are in a, we're we're so divided. We can never come back together. We're, we're, we're so shattered as a, as a nation that, that the divisions can never be healed. But Lincoln had a, had a, you know, a, a challenge that was arguably much vaster when it came down to, reuniting the country talk to us about how the things you've learned from from this set of lessons how lincoln would approach today in your opinion and where are we going wrong what how could we be more like abe in in the assertion that holding the union together is the high, is the high calling that it is the government shutdown that i was a you know one of the I had
1: a non speaking role in the cast of thousands of furloughed employees during the 96 po- uh, shutdown. And I watched what happened this weekend. And I think, you know, Abe Lincoln, throughout the Civil War and every day of his administration, kept the government open. The federal government offices in the North opened at 9 a.m. like they did before the war, and they closed at 3 p.m. like they did before and after the war. And not one day was the government shut down. And Lincoln said, in a special message to Congress on July 4th, 1864, we are never going to shut down the government because the people have the right to continuity of government. And so he took that whole issue off the table, even as half the country was in armed rebellion, in murderous slaughter, ultimately trying to shut down the federal government. So one thing that I think we ought to get back to are basic principles, and take off the table this sort of show play that passes as governance. You know, I, I remember Tom Holt's great book, The Right Stuff. Men want to do something, boys want to do something. And what I see from the Matt Gates of the world are people who want to be somebody. And what we need are people who actually want to do something. You know, the, I talk in the book about the fact – I'm a former federal prosecutor. You know, I, I, I used to you – know, people in prison for lying on their bank statements and their and committing insurance fraud. That was a very familiar thing for
0: me. You know, there's, there, I think there's a case out there like that right now. I'm having trouble remembering who it is, but I, I heard there's a case like that right now. It can't possibly be because I'm a federal court creature. If you so much
1: just looked at the federal district court judge wrong, you'd be in contempt. I guess people are more tolerant in New York. But anyway, I start the book by saying that, that Abe Lincoln was a man who was, even for a lawyer, renowned for being obsessed with fact. They said that Abe Lincoln took nothing on faith or trust, but looked for himself to see what the facts were. And I talk in the book about the fact, and you talk about it too in, in a better way, but uh, truth has a very overrated reputation. Like, truth is, people think good things about truth. And as a prosecutor, I never talked about truth. I talked about facts that I could prove. Because truth can be based on faith. And faith can never be proven. That's why it's so beautiful. That's why it's faith. You can't be Abe Lincoln without faith. I'm a man of faith. But you know what our founding fathers realized? Faith, because it can't be proven and because it's subjective, has no place in the public sphere. And we got to get back to a place where we can talk in terms of fact and stop talking in terms of your truth versus my truth, because there's no your truth or my truth in the public sphere. They're just facts. And Lincoln would be criticized for asking so many questions and for taking so long before he made a decision. But he said, I want to know the facts so that when I make the decision, I can be confident that I'm right. I talk about why Americans hate facts and would prefer truth, and why it's put us in the in the bad spot we're in.
0: I think one of my favorite chapters in this was was the in the navigate chapter because I'm a pilot. I'm a guy who spent my life in the air and on the water, and and navigation to me, you know, it's a skill. It's a it's a mindset. It's an application of both knowledge and data and everything else. And you talked about that as one of his principles of like, learn how to navigate through the world. Talk to us about that chapter in particular, because uh, it spoke to me because you talked about his experience on the river as a young man and and working those problems. Talk to me a little bit about that chapter, because I think that's something that the opposite of navigation is, is being lost. (laughs) And, And too many people in the country, I think feel very lost right now.
1: I'm so glad you mentioned that's one of the steps to be Lincoln is you've got to know how to navigate. And, you know, the context of this is if you asked Abe Lincoln, what he was proudest of, uh, he, he said he was proud of the fact that with no training, he built a flat boat that was sturdy enough to go from Indiana to New Orleans over a thousand miles each way. And he was the pilot of that boat. And he was the one without maps because there were no, And without any, again, without any training, managed to steer his way in and out of danger. He was almost killed in one accident. He was almost murdered by other people by uh, people in in uh, in a second incident. But he managed to get there and come back, and he did it well enough to be asked to do it again, and he did. So there's in my mind, and I I know you're you're an instrument trained pilot, and uh, I find navigation to be one of the sacred skills because I do think skill is a sacred. I think if you teach yourself a skill like navigation, particularly navigation, you become something that we've lost touch with in our country. In America, as Emerson wrote, self-reliance was a fundamental American characteristic. Self-reliance, the ability to get from here to there on your own without being told and certainly without relying on technology. Now we live in a world where nobody can read a map. If the GPS goes down, nobody can get anywhere. And we have become become vulnerable. Our inability to know how to get from here to there has made us vulnerable to the directions of people who don't have our best interests at heart. And so navigation to me and the river and its experience in Lincoln, you know, the river taught Lincoln everything he was ever really to learn about the rest of the country. It's the most traveling he ever did. And the most expansive experience he had and the metaphor of the river, you know, I, I, those who, who read Siddhartha as a kid and it scarred them for life, you know, the, the, the the Buddhism teaches us that it, that, that life as a, as a river, you know, we're all running to the same end, you know, it's not the ocean, it's death. And, and we're luckier than rivers because we get to choose our course but we can't choose the course unless we know how to navigate the river. And, you know, I talk in, I talk in the book about one of the scariest things that ever happened to me was driving from Sacramento to uh, Berkeley, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They lost in Thule Fog, which is, it's kind of a unique uh, weather, right, situation right. in California, where it just suddenly it becomes a whiteout and you can't pull off to the it's side. Like, the lights, the lights go out. <laughs> lights on, you just have to keep driving. And, You know, one of the things I talk about, again, in terms of faith, because I am a man of faith. And I, 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 you know, you can't read Lincoln without being impressed by his spirituality, unconventional though it was. You know, sometimes you have to navigate by faith. Sometimes you have to navigate by faith. And that's okay. So long as you've done all the preparation and all the rational thinking you
0: can before that point. You know, you mentioned in the book, and this also was something that, that was near and dear to my heart, you talked about Lincoln as a Stoic, and and Stoicism is having a moment right now, uh, which I'm glad to hear because, you know, I, I was deeply influenced by Stoicism growing up, and, and it's a semi-secular faith or an approach to life. Talk to us about Lincoln's Stoicism and how that made him stronger and how that can make people stronger um, in in this world, because I think that is really something you picked up on, that I had not frequently seen people like connected as directly uh, as you did. You know, Lincoln read Marcus Aurelius.
1: You know, we we, we know that as we we know what was in his library. We know who he cited and who he quoted. I like you saying that Stoicism is having its moment. Uh, I, I sent our three children the Daily Stoic as a Hanukkah gift several years ago and now it's become hip. <laughs> I don't know how hip, but right. uh, and I also laugh that it's having it's pretty
0: this- hip right now. It's pretty it's well, kind of a thing. You
1: no, know, I don't tell anybody. Stoics were writing at the same time that the J source was writing Deuteronomy. The the, the give you a little bit of historical context. The, the the great thinkers of the East The Stoics and the people who wrote the Bible were thinking the same things. And I was taught Stoicism in Hebrew school because it's the same concept. It's the book of Ecclesiastes. To me, the great Stoics are Marcus Aurelius, Epictetus, Seneca, and Koheleth, who's the preacher who wrote or is the speaker in Ecclesiastes. There's a season for everything. We're all going to die, so honor a higher power. Try to be with people in a positive way. Eat, drink, and be merry. Know that the house of wisdom is full of woe and the house of folly is full of mirth. And realize the only thing you can control is you. And that's what made Lincoln a tremendous stoic. He, for, literally, from the time he could start talking, He took on himself the responsibility of of being a better version than himself. He was always trying to improve himself. He was always trying to work on how he reacted to things. And he wasn't born great. He had an emotional glass chin. Every time a woman would leave him, he'd become so suicidal. His friends would take the razor out of his bedroom. But he learned through self-improvement how to get better. And... In getting better, he really focused on his soul, and what he was interested in getting better with was not letting the outside world rob him of his peace of mind and his sense that he was a worthy human being because he behaved in a principled way. That though, that, that didn't that wasn't given to him; he earned that because we practice. I'm a
0: practicing stoic. You don't achieve stoicism; you practice it. As you point out in the book, when John Wilkes Booth assassinated Lincoln at the aforementioned comedy, when he assassinated him, you said he took nothing that Lincoln was not already willing to give. And, and I mean that to me is something that, that is very different from today. Most people in politics, as you, as you know, they are willing to give nothing. They are willing to sacrifice nothing. They're not even willing to be made uncomfortable these days. They're they're not willing to, to risk the chance of somebody in a primary election coming after their job. If I could, if I could make people in politics absorb that particular lesson, that, that sometimes in, in this world, sacrificing your comfort, sacrificing your, even your job, um, or your safety, sometimes it's called upon. You're called upon to do that. And, and, and you that that line really struck me that that Booth did not take anything Lincoln was not willing to give, and I'm not saying that people should you know welcome being assassinated. I'm saying they should not live in the fear of the small things. And I think you really captured that as you wrote this book, and, and you talked about how to apply these lessons for people. What do you think is the most important of them for folks that are reading this now here in this moment in 2023? You know, as we're in this moment of chaos and division and and, and confusion.
1: Uh, You ask for one, I'll give you two. Uh, One is not a step, and the other one is a step. I was writing this book. um, I finished writing this book the week before my father passed away. Uh, 87-year-old Korean War vet. uh, And I was actually, I moved back into my old childhood room to help my mom out. And so I finished the rewrites on the book in my old desk from high school. And, um, you know, we're all going to die. And that's okay. What I don't understand is uh, people's belief that they're going to live forever and will uh, do whatever it takes to hold on to whatever temporal position they have, because that's all that matters. And I guess what Lincoln taught me and and teaches us all is, you know, from 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 the beginning of his life, he was willing to lay his life down if it was necessary and the right thing to do. Because as a Stoic, he knew and reminded himself every day he wasn't here forever, right? Lincoln looked and I think in in his own way prayed for opportunities to do the right thing. Because that's how one becomes legendary. One becomes legendary. And there's a difference between legendary and famous. One becomes legendary by leading a life worthy of fame doesn't mean you're famous, doesn't mean anyone will ever know, but you're worthy of it and you know it, and that's all that matters. So so the first thing I would say is we need to humbly, humbly admit our mortality. And the other thing we need to do, and it's a step in the book, you can't be Lincoln without love. Lincoln was, according right. to those people who really knew him, the most loving man they ever met. Uh, As a parent, I'm always moved when I read how Lincoln really went out of his way to be kind to to his son, Tad, who, if he were alive today, Tad would be diagnosed with autism or with learning disabilities. Sure. Every time Tad would break into a cabinet meeting or disrupt something, Lincoln would literally get down on his knees and take as long as it, it took for Tad to say what he had to say. And... Lincoln's bodyguard said, got frustrated trying to explain what made Lincoln great because the words failed him. But he said it was love. And this, you know, I'm a former federal prosecutor. No one's ever accused me of being a particularly touchy-feely, Leo Buscalia type guy. But what is missing in our country is a love for our fellow Americans. And I never thought I'd see that. And I know too many wonderful Americans, loving Americans, who are desperate to get back to that sense of community. You read Gallup polls. I was very taken by the fact that the institutions that have lost a lot of support in in the public media, Congress, organized religion that's not the whole story. For example, gay marriage has gone up 30 points. What's the difference? The gay community invited the whole country to their wedding. The gay community wanted to share this experience of love with their fellow Americans, and you know what? Americans were open to it. In fact, I'd say they were desperate for it. I think you and I would have loved Lincoln. Oh yeah. I, I talk in terms of men and women I've known who were Lincoln-esque,
0: and they're the kind of people. I, I, that was a great chapter. Thank you. The Lincolns you have known. Yeah. Yeah,
1: and and they were men and women. Black and white, gay and straight. They're all types of people. Anybody can be Lincoln. My father was five six and about 200 most of the time. He was the most Lincoln-esque man I ever met. Why? Because he could laugh, always at himself. He was always trying to improve himself. He would object, even when it cost him, when it was necessary to stand up to, to evil. He collaborated beautifully with other people, which is another step that we've lost. But fundamentally, you know, when my dad died, I was blessed with the fact that everyone who came up to me afterwards said the same thing. Your dad was the sweetest man we knew. You know, it's not cheating to be sweet and loving to other people, particularly if we're fellow Americans. It doesn't mean we're—we should disagree, but we got to disagree on facts in a way that at least acknowledges the humanity of the other person and the other side.
0: Yeah, and it, it really has sort of sunk into a weird space now in our politics where—and look— I, I have a low tolerance for things like authoritarianism and cruelty and, and racial hatred. I have a very low tolerance for those things, but there are a lot of people who don't have a fully cohesive view of what's really going on in the political space. And, and I have to be better myself sometimes about, about explaining, you know, what evil is in the world. And sometimes you, you know, and it's always a temptation in our social media space to just whack the heads off of, of people that you disagree with. And I'm very good at it. And I, tr- I try to control that from time to time. No, you are very
1: good at it. You, I, as a fan of your work, if I may be so bold. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Uh, you have evolved in, in a way that Lincoln evolved. Lincoln was an insult comic. I, I want to be clear about this. In his Up to his early 30s, he was famous for mimicking people and for saying sarcastic, rude things. And in one episode, and I talk about it in the book, he felt shame when his humor went over the line. He never did it again. To be Lincoln does not require when we pitch a perfect game. It
0: requires that we just do better. Yeah, it is the, it's the, the asymptotic curve. You're always going to go up, or you always want to try to go up. You're never going to get to perfection. You're never going to hit a peak like that. Well, Jonathan Shapiro, I want to thank you very, very much for coming on the enemies list today. Uh, folks, the book is How to Be Abe Lincoln. Seven steps to leading a legendary life. It's available on Amazon and all other places fine books are sold. It is really well worth your time. I I really enjoyed going through it as a, not not only an aficionado of Lincoln, but as you know somebody who really is, I, I'm fascinated by the lessons of one of the most profound and important figures in our in our society and our politics and our culture. For now, you know we're close to 200 years of Abe Lincoln. And it is a very different – it's a very different world than he grew up in and the world he operated in. But the lessons carry through. So once again, Jonathan, thank you so, so much for coming on. And uh, best of luck with the book. And we'll look forward to talking to you again soon.
1: Thanks so much. It's a pleasure.
0: On today's enemies list, it couldn't be any easier. The Chaos Caucus, the Republican House. Look, I get it. You guys – took a poison pill when you let Matt Gates in the door. It's like letting a vampire in the house. You just don't do it. But you guys gave Matt Gates and the Chaos Caucus the power to remove Kevin McCarthy. And now, you can't get Steve Scalise, the most basic bitch, ug boot, middle of the road, hyper conservative out there. I mean, he's a monstrous human being otherwise, but for you guys, he was right in the middle. He was dead average. What are you going to do now? You guys are in deep, deep water. The government's been paralyzed for 10 days now, and it's all because none of you have the maturity, the capacity to understand what you're doing, the moral center to stop playing these games and get back to work. That's why you're on the enemies list. Thanks again for listening to the enemies list.